I've been no, endlessly surprised by fungi. I mean, I was surprised to find out that they produce um, 50 million tons of spores every year. So the largest living source of particles in the air and that these spores can influence the weather uh, by changing the way that water droplets form in the, in the atmosphere. Uh, that was a shock, um, but that's just one of so many shocks. and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast with me, Lena Norms. This month we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Vintage Books podcast, so thank you so much for joining us along on this journey. Today we have a really special guest on the podcast, Merlin Sheldrake, a biologist and author whose book Entangled Life, How Fungi Made Our Worlds, Changed Our Minds and Shaped Our Futures, became an instant Sunday Times bestseller. Fungi have given us bread, alcohol and life-saving medicines, despite not having a brain, they can manipulate animal behaviour. They can digest plastic, explosives and even crude oil. Merlin is here to tell us more about how fungi have shaped human history. So settle in for some fascinating facts. So Merlin, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning and this um, very remote interview. Um, so thank you so much for chatting to us. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. It's good to be here. How's, how's your 2020 been so far? <laughs> um, a complex, I yeah. imagine, like most people's. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. It's a little bit less exploring than usual, I can imagine. Um, so yeah. tell us a little bit um, about um, your journey towards writing this incredible book. Um, the Entangled Life has like so many aspects to it and it's just, it must have been um, a little bit of a, um, an opening road as you kind of started to research it. Things just start expanding, I, I imagine a little bit like a kind of um, underground network itself. But tell, tell us a little bit about how you got into biology in, in general and how, how you started getting curious about nature? Well I've always been interested in the natural world and uh, in more than human lives and Mm. um, how organisms live and what they do and it's just been always a source of curiosity for me and the fungal interest grew and grew over the years um, through various angles. I was interested in how things rot when I was a child, how do things change, how do things vanish, how does a log become soil um, and then later on became interested in symbiosis. How do organisms um, find these astonishing intimate ways to live together? Mm. Uh, and what does that tell us about the history of life? And what does that tell us about the future of life? And so that took me into fungal worlds because fungi are such big players in some of the most blockbuster symbioses on the planet. So you can't think about symbiosis for too long without bumping into fungi. Um, so that was one. And then once I started... Um, really, you know, researching fungi and you know, doing my um, work with these fungal relationships with plants, and it's it's a um, it's a sort of corridor with hundreds of doors leading off it, stretching into the distance, or a helter skelter into ever deepening um, fascination. You know, this subject is one with with no bottom. It feels you can just enter into a free fall, and so I'm still very much uh, tangled up in this fungal inquiry, and don't expect that I'll leave anytime soon. I like the helter skelter analogy. That's great. <laughs> Feels a bit dizzying. Um, I was definitely like really floored by a lot of the stuff in the book, and I think I I almost you know I think um, I li- like to think of myself as as relatively well read, but I was definitely still conflating the word fungi with 
mushrooms um, and there's just so much stuff that in the book that I realised I was wrong about are there any misconceptions that you had kind of going into it that were, that blew you away or any misconceptions that you just keep coming across um, about fungi yeah well there's there's a kind of a sense that um, it's a kind of a thriller or a whodunit and then you, know, you, you lift you twitch the curtain aside and, and there are fungi with it once again you know the <laughs> culprits yet again um, and so there is a sense that they are um making a lot of life happen uh, and and so I've been surprised at quite how prolific they are uh, and to find them showing up in uh, even distant corners of the biological world. Um, I've been no, endlessly surprised by fungi. I mean I was surprised to find out that they produce um, 50 million tons of spores every year so the largest living source of particles in the air and that these spores can influence the weather uh, by changing the way that water droplets form in the, in the atmosphere. Um, that was a shock, um, but that's just one of so many shocks um, that, that I've had with... I've got so used to these shocks, actually, um, kind of spoiled with shock. Yeah. For, for those people who haven't read the book yet, can you just explain in very layman's terms like um, what the word fungi encompasses? Because it's these um, mycelium, mycelium... Am I saying it right? Mycelium... Mycelium, ne- yeah, mycelium. mycelium um, networks. But tell us a little bit about when you say the word fungi, what you're talking about. Fungi. Fungi? I don't yeah. even know how to uh, say it. <laughs> you, you can say it either way. Um, OK. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so when we think of fungi, we normally think of mushrooms. But mm. mushrooms are just the fruits of fungi, uh, analogous to the apples on a tree. Uh, but most fungi live most of their lives as uh, branching, fusing networks of tubular cells, uh, which is called mycelium. So mycelium describes a habit. It's a bit like the word tree. Uh, there are many ways to be uh, mycelial, uh, a fungal mycelial network. Um, some uh, form tiny ephemeral uh, puffs that don't range beyond their food source and some grow into the largest organisms in the world and the la- one of the largest in the world is uh, a fungal network in Oregon that sprawls across 10 square kilometers and is somewhere between two and eight thousand years old so it's a very uh, diverse way of life um, and many of the astonishing things that fungi do they do as mycelium rather than as mushrooms. A few people may have read the book and The Secret Life of Trees and there was a kind of conversation around like, oh wow, wasn't it amazing that trees talk to each other? And this you know, phrase started coming around that you mentioned in the book, the wood wide web. But that what was interesting is as the book went on, you were like, actually, this, this phrase isn't as helpful as we think it is. Tell us a little bit about why you think the phrase like wood wide web is a bit misleading and, and other ways we can think about it. Yeah, so it's a convenient metaphor because it's vivid and it instantly communicates this idea of, of plants being socially networked, um, of plants being connected to each other in maybe in a way that we um, weren't aware of before. And it is for sure uh, a dramatic phenomenon. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing. And um, I, I often think about it as if uh, an extraterrestrial anthropologist who'd been studying humanity um, for decades, only found out yesterday that we had something called the internet. And it's a bit like that uh, for contemporary ecologists. And so this really is a dramatic thing. And so the World Wide Web is convenient, but perhaps too convenient. Um, Because when we use this term, it makes it seem as if trees are the hubs in the network, the routers, and that fungi are the cables that connect them. And um, the cable in a World Wide Web, or in in the internet rather, it's a very passive 
part of the infrastructure. And so when we think of fungi as passive cables, they kind of recede from view. It becomes all about the plants and what the plants are doing. We have a very plant-centric view of these networks. Um, and it makes certain things harder to understand because actually these fungi are active players. Every link in a wood-wide web is a fungus with a life of its own and with its own interests, with its own um, evolutionary history. And so for me, one of the reasons why it's problematic is that it tends to obscure the role of the fungi. Um, I try to, um, to bring a mycocentric perspective um, and to see it from the fungal point of view, although of course seeing it from both points of view is helpful. Um, so yeah, so, so I, I think we, you know, it's, a, it's a helpful way in, um, but as long as we remember that it's an imperfect metaphor. And I suppose as well, it, the idea of it being a mechanism um, implies that uh, it's something that if we if we damage it, it can be easily fixed. Um, if 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 not each part of it is making a choice, then it's more of like controlled by something. Um, whereas I suppose it's more like each part of it is really intelligent and is making an intelligent decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one of the problems with machine metaphors in general, you know, we, we use machine metaphors often to understand the natural living world, but um, and they work up to a point. But in reality. Organisms grow. Machines are built by humans. Organisms um, repair them, heal themselves. Uh, uh, machines are maintained by humans. There are many ways that machine metaphors fall short uh, of describing uh, the living world, uh, and in this case, this case is no exception. Do you think that kind of the, that way of thinking has affected how we think about um, not just fungi but but nature in general? Do you do you stumble upon that attitude a lot in your research? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think if we see the living world as a machine or as entirely made up of mechanical um, sort of automata, then we're more likely to treat it as a machine. Um, and I think uh, the crisis that we find ourselves in is in part because we um, feel able to treat the living world um, as if it was a machine. Um, so I think it's potentially a dangerous um, metaphor, or at least if we forget that it's a metaphor, if we confuse it for reality. And um, another thing that leads us into trouble, of course, is imagining ourselves as neatly separable um, from each other and from the modern human world. Um, and by imagining ourselves as neatly separable, as um, bounded, isolated, autonomous, independent individuals, um, that we can justify environmental devastation um, and exploitation, uh, whether of other humans or as of the, the living world. Um, because it's easier to convince ourselves that um, it doesn't matter if we do that, um, that it won't actually come around to affect us. And so I think that um, this, this sort of myth of us being isolated individuals has another important role to play in, in the crisis we find ourselves in. Yeah, because wasn't there a part in the book, it was something about being on the biological right <laughs> and the biological left. <laughs> and um, somebody saying like, oh, um, uh, kind of about how, how there is like a, an element of capitalism and, uh, around the thought around that. Is that, is that. Do you consider yourself on the biological left? Is that a real thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a joke between uh, two... Um, two people, two academics talking about symbiosis and the way yeah. that we conceive yeah. of um, these relationships where all organisms are symbiotic organisms. We have uh, trillions of microbes that live in and on us without which we wouldn't grow and behave as we do. Um, our cells contain 
um, organelles, you know, mitochondria, where energy is produced. And these were once bacteria that we've domesticated um, mm. millions and millions and millions of years ago. And so um, bacteria can have small bacteria living inside them. Uh, bacteria have viruses inside them. Fungi have bacteria inside them and viruses. I mean, the story of life is one of the story of, uh, as Lynn Margulis said, the long-lasting intimacy of strangers. Um, and so this conversation about the biological left and right was going on between uh, a guy called Jan Sapp, and he was saying that you know, there's no such thing as the individual when you're looking in the biological world, um, because it's all just these nested selves inside each other. You can't, there's no neat um, distinction um, as, as humans would have it, have it seem. Um, and his, his, his um, sparring partner was... Um, tends to be more politically right. And he's, for him, you needed individuals because otherwise uh, the capitalism came crashing down because you have to have act, uh, no, individuals acting in their own interest, rationally in their own interest. Uh, so he was defending this idea of the individual and they had this uh, little battle about it. And that's where he said, um, no, you're on the biological left, I'm on the biological right. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a joke, but you do find these themes um, you know, seeping into any discussion of relationships. Uh, because we tend to imagine relationships in our terms. That's amazing, and I suppose it depends on how far you take that. Like how, how, what, to what extent do our scientific findings have to apply to how we how we live? It's it's really interesting. Um, I I knew that we had like some kind of historical relationship with fungi, but I didn't realise how far back it went. Um, you talked about the the Romans prayed to the god of mildew, um, like our relationship with with penicillin and how that changed everything. But it also goes back even further than that it was when you were talking about alcohol in the book that I thought was really interesting was that we've been like kind of eating fermented fruit and and feeling the effects of it from even before we were humans like how that's amazing tell us a little bit more about that yes yeah, so we we've been fermenting alcohol for a very long time and the oldest um no, knockdown evidence is from about 9,000 years ago in China, but there's evidence from about 100,000 years ago which suggests that um, humans were fermenting palm, um, mm. palm wine, palm liquor. And, um, but of course it probably goes back even further because in our genome we have an enzyme called ADH4 which allows us to metabolize alcohol. It allows us to break down alcohol um, safely and use it as a source of energy. And without this enzyme, we wouldn't be able to drink the way that we can. But we share this, this enzyme upgraded about 10 million years ago. Um, and in, um, so in, in, in the drunken monkey hypothesis, which is this <laughs> hypothesis put forward to explain our human fondness for alcohol, um, it's, you know, so the drunken monkey hypothesis says that we, we, we like alcohol because our, our um, primate progenitors also liked alcohol. Um, and that this enzyme mutation um, was something that allowed our ancestors to move out of trees and to make a life on the forest floor um, where we could eat these, this, you know, enter this new dietary niche, which is overripe fruit, which had fallen to the forest floor. Uh, without this enzyme upgrade, um, we wouldn't be able to do that. With the enzyme upgrade, we are able to um, explore this whole new dietary niche. So there's a sense in which our fondness for alcohol is written deep into our genome in the form of this uh, turbocharged um, alcohol enzyme. So we're really talking about a very ancient fascination here. Yeah, that's incredible. And there's a, a, a nice quote that I, I, I liked in the books from Giles Deleuze. It says, 
drunkness is a triumph of eruption of the plant in us. <laughs> it sounds like a, a great sign to hang above a pub door. <laughs> um, tell, there's some other really interesting things about it, it, kind of like it being intelligent in a in a more spatial sense. So um, you talked about Tokyo train networks and how how that there's, there's some secret fungi history there. Yeah, so this is with slime mold rather than with true fungi. Slime oh, molds right, okay. are network-based organisms. Um, they're, they're not true fungi as most molds are, mm. uh, as true molds are. But um, but so but they still they, they tell us a lot about how these network-based organisms behave, and they they become this poster organism for network problem solving, brainless problem solving, and mm. min, and fungal networks can do many of the things that they can. Um, so so the experiment was great. It's these these um, Japanese researchers got um, these oat flakes, which, which slime molds love oats, and they got these oat flakes and they put them on um, these city these urban centres in the Greater Tokyo area. And they released the slime molds into the dish. And slime molds, so there's no brain, it's one giant cell. They have this kind of pulsing oscillations and these tentacle-like veins that they send out. And they can withdraw um, from parts of the network and they can explore in other directions. And so they're very good at searching space and forming efficient transport networks. And so within a few hours, they'd formed um, a network. They distributed themselves between these oat flakes in a network that... Um, was very, very similar to the existing Tokyo subway network. And it's an example of how these brainless uh, network distributed organisms um, can form these very efficient um, these very efficient ways of distributing themselves. And they have these very efficient space searching algorithms. And people are now using slime molds and, um, and fungi to, um, to solve spatial puzzles and to... Um, and to plan urban um, urban transport networks. That's oh, incredible. Um, tell us, tell us, um, lastly, a little bit about how you went about putting the book together, because it must have been a kind of a bit of a challenge to pick which parts to include, how to structure it. How how did you find that process? Yeah, it was an adventure. Um, <laughs> there are so many. You know, I wrote a, I wrote a first draft very quick. Well, I mean, I. I I wrote the first draft very messily over about a year um, without really reading back on it, just to have a, a puddle of text in which I hoped I'd find a book. And then I started to go and going over it to put, and started weaving these strands together. I thought very much in, in terms of weaving. I've always loved tying knots since I was a child, tying and untying knots. Mm -hmm. And so th this, these were helpful figures for me when I was um, writing and trying to get these strands um, of the book to to weave together or, or not to weave. And um, it was very much in this fungal sign. When you think about mycelium for too long, it stretches your mind. It feels like it's doing some kind of um, funny you know, exercise routine on the very structure of your mind. And, and it's not used to working in this way. So um, I, much of this process of writing the book was a process of coming to terms with mycelium um, and this weaving, writhing form. And so that's that's how I spent most of my um that's what that's what I thought about um for much of the time when I was writing you didn't leave oat, piles of oats around your notes <laughs> hoped that a book would form um and I love the um thing the the illustrations in the book like not in not in every individual copy obviously but the original illustrations of the book were made with a kind of fungi ink is that right 
That's Co right, from the ink cap. Coprinus. Yeah, Coprinus, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this, this it's amazing. This, this mushroom is it's a kind of brilliant white, um, but if you put it in a jar, it will deliquesce into this pitch blank ink over a course of a few days. Um, it's this, this sort of icon of fungal ambiguity. You know, this mushroom, you can, it can punch its way through an asphalt road as it grows. Uh, you can then eat it. Um, it's very delicious when you've just got a sort of soft, fleshy, mushroomy texture. Um, it will then deliquesce into this pitch black ink. It's just constantly transforming um, entity. It's, it's really um, a remarkable thing to observe. It's amazing. And I also really enjoy this. Um, it's quite a tactile book and there's like a big kind of colour section in the middle and you can find pictures of um, truffle hunting dogs <laughs> and um, all sorts of stuff. It's really cool to see. And um, what's it what's it like um, kind of having the book in in people's hands and um, people being able to read it now? Is, is it strange? Is it exciting? Um, what kind of reception are you getting? Yeah, it's exciting. People seem to be I'm really enjoying it, which is a lovely surprise. Um, it's a great thrill for something that I've um, I spent so much time nerding out about um, to, to find that being of interest to other people too. So, um, so I'm pleasantly surprised at, um, at how enthusiastic people seem to be. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's definitely like made me think a little bit differently about the ways we mimic nature and how we understand it. Um, so I think it's going to be really exciting when lots of people read it and uh, see what everybody <laughs> thinks of it. Um, so thank you so much for being on the podcast, um, Merlin. It's really, really great. And I uh, can't wait to hear what you do. <laughs> great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Podcast. If you're interested, there is a link to find out more about Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake in the episode description. We are celebrating 10 years of the Vintage Books podcast, so we'd love to hear what your favourite episode has been. You can find us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and we'll be sharing some of our favourites too, so look out for some recommendations from our archives. Keep reading boldly and thinking differently, and until next time. Mm -hmm.